Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in December of 2018. Our talk is hosted by Alan Tunnelson and our guest, Dr. Jorge Castaneda. Dr. Castaneda is the former Mexican Secretary of Foreign Affairs under President Vicente Fox. He received his bachelor's degree from Lycée Franco-Mexicain, his master's from Princeton University in History, and his doctorate in Economic History from the University of Paris. Dr. Castaneda began his political career advising different presidential campaigns. After a successful run with Vicente Fox, he was appointed Secretary of Foreign Affairs. In 2003, he was appointed to the UN Commission on the Private Sector and Development, and would later go on to run for president himself. Dr. Castaneda is a contributor to many publications, including the New York Times and Foreign Affairs. He is the author of Utopia Unarmed and America Through Foreign Eyes, all of which center around geopolitics and the political economy. Together, we discuss the role Mexico plays in the world, why trade agreements have not spurred development as much as policymakers had hoped, and why inequality has increased between the North and South within Mexico. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, once again, welcome, Jorge. It's great to have you here. And I thought we might start off with a subject that's been certainly dominating U.S. headlines in recent weeks, the caravan movements of migrants from Central America that's ne- that have now reached the U.S. border. Looks like the prospect of more to come, although that's still somewhat uncertain. But I was wondering what you thought was the most important thing for Americans to understand about this, this development that hasn't been widely reported or, or commented on yet. Well, I think there's two things, Alan, and thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, um, you know, you have about 10,000 people, maybe mm-hmm. most, bunched together mm-hmm. at any given place on the U.S.-Mexican border, mm-hmm. mainly Hondurans, mm-hmm. some Salvadorans, some Guatemalans. Um, what is new is that they're all together, not mm-hmm. the absolute numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, thousands of mm-hmm. Central Americans, mainly from the Northern Triangle countries, mm-hmm. Uh, and come to the United States and enter the United States without papers or with papers, mm-hmm. depending on the case, um, every day, every right. week, mm-hmm. every month. Right. Uh, the mm-hmm. absolute numbers are not that different. What right. has changed with the caravans, mm-hmm. which began last April, mm-hmm. uh, is the fact that they travel together. 
Why do they travel together? Because mm. it's much safer in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Mexico is a very dangerous country right. because of crime, violence, drug cartels, what have you. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Hondurans, perhaps some political organizers, perhaps some people smugglers, mm -hmm. perhaps all, all of the above, right. decided that it was much safer mm -hmm. to travel together than right. to travel in small groups. Right. But the absolute numbers right are the same. There are not more Central Americans arriving in right. the United States right. now than three months ago, five years ago, ten years ago. It's the same. Right. So that's, a th I think, a really important first mm -hmm. point that maybe mm -hmm. Americans are not familiar with. Right. A second point is that, yes, obviously there are economic and social factors driving these people mm -hmm. to the United States, right. like from all over the world. It's sure. not exactly that only Hondurans right. want to come here. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's also true that there are specific issues of violence mm -hmm. and danger right. and gangs in those three countries that make the claim of asylum by these migrants mm -hmm. as opposed to, let's say, uh, Ecuadorian migrants right. or Mexican mm -hmm. migrants very different. Right. Um, there is a... Uh, there are grounds mm -hmm. for at least a hearing on asylum mm -hmm. for many of these people, right. unlike the case of other migrants. Mm -hmm. The violence levels, uh, Honduras, San Pedro Sula, which is the city in Honduras right. where most of these people come mm -hmm. from, is one of the most violent cities in the world. Right. Uh, El Salvador and Honduras have the highest uh, homicide rates of any country in the world out, not at war today. Mm -hmm. right. Um, and so there are grounds for individual fear. If your brother was killed by a gang, right. uh, I, you have reasonable... You could be targeted. <laughs> right. sure. think they're going to kill you too. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and if your mother was right. raped, then you, know, you have a reason, reasonable grounds for thinking that right. you may be raped, right. and so on and so forth. Right. And so uh, it's important to understand for Americans, I believe, that uh, these are not traditional economic mm -hmm. migrants uh, with or without papers. These mm -hmm. are people who are actually fleeing from mm -hmm. the very specific individual danger right. uh, in addition mm -hmm. to also wanting to have a better life. Mm -hmm. One concern that I've heard expressed um, in the states here about this new asylum dimension of the migration issue is that the is that as you've said the violence especially in these three central american countries is so widespread and so random however large scale it is there is a randomness to it that if you that if the, the asylum rules were interpreted so as to establish fear of such violence as valid grounds for entering the united states you could see hundreds of thousands of residents of these three countries heading towards the U.S. border, which would pose a short-term problem of processing these through a system that is already strained, and a longer-term issue of absorbing a large population of largely very low-income, rather uneducated, rather unskilled people. Well, I, I think there's a a short-term problem, which you mentioned, and there's a longer-term one. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. there are hundreds of thousands 
of Honduran and Salvadorians mm. in the United States mm, uh, right. under what's called temporary protection status, yes. uh, TPS, um, who arrived in the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right. mainly for mm. natural catastrophe right. uh, issues. Uh, and hurricanes. Ha hurricanes, and, and earthquakes, yes. whatever. Yes. And uh, the United States has not had any problem in right. absorbing them. These are mm. still very small quantities of people. This mm. is a country of 330 million inhabitants, mm. you know, uh, uh, 50,000 more, 100,000 mm. more Hondurans mm. or Salvadorans is not going to make a big difference. Yeah. The proof of it is that 100,000 more Salvadorans did not mm. make a big difference. So mm. that's, that's a, in the long term, this is mm. not entirely uh, true. Mm. Uh, in the short term, there is a processing issue, unquestionably, right. Right. Um, and uh, that costs money, mm -hmm. uh, like there was a processing issue in Germany for uh, the Syrians mainly and sure. the Afghans, right. and a processing issue in Greece also for the Syrians mm -hmm. mainly and, and Afghans, uh, and in Turkey, uh, and that costs money. And so you have to find ways to pay for it. Sure. But again, this is a country of 330 million mm -hmm. people with the biggest, the richest country in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is peanuts we're talking about in terms of the overall U.S. Uh, budget. The question here maybe, Alan, that is worth looking into is that there's a discussion going on at the United Nations and in, mm -hmm. among international law circles, et cetera, if the to, to the effect that the, the traditional notion of asylum, mm -hmm. which is enshrined in a series of conventions sure. mm -hmm. that the U.S. is a party to, mm -hmm. um, regarding war, genocide, right. mm -hmm. <clears throat> etc., are not sufficient anymore, right. which mm -hmm. is why a thing called complementary complementary mm -hmm. right. um, <clears throat> factors are being added increasingly by the United Nations High Commissioner for Re uh, Refugees, UNHCR, mm -hmm. by the General Assembly, uh, by a series, uh, increasingly even to now by the UN Secretary General, because things like domestic strife, like well, climate change, yeah. mm -hmm. like all of these issues mm -hmm. are becoming incre increasingly relevant. Right. They've certainly become drivers of human movement that we exactly. haven't seen before. So, you know, you, you have to include them there. It's no mm -hmm. longer a specific thing. Are you a refugee from a war? Right. Yeah, there still are some wars, obviously, and yeah. unfortunately, but that is no longer, mm -hmm. or they're no longer the only factors determining mm -hmm. uh, refugees and particularly sending them back. Because right. the issue here is not only on what grounds do you let them in, mm -hmm. but on what grounds do you send them back? Sure, sure, right. You, so, you know, you have a guy, a Honduran, any one of these guys right. in the caravan. Mm -hmm. For one way or another, he gets in, mm -hmm. or she gets in. Yeah. Sets foot on American soil, right. is allowed to request asylum, right. is allowed to have a hearing, mm -hmm. and after a series of hearings, he or she, the U.S. government decides to send them back. Send right. them back right. where? Well, sure. To, if it's only a country at war, then you can send them back because there is no war. Right. But if they are in danger because there was just a tsunami mm -hmm. right. or an earthquake right. or a hurricane right. or gangs right. or whatever, mm -hmm. then that component of existing international refugee law mm -hmm. is not sufficient. Right, right. So you have to incorporate it. The Trump administration is obviously not quite 
open-minded about really these sorts of things, not terribly right. interested, mm, right. but that doesn't really matter in the long scheme of things. Mm. Uh, this is something that is going to have to be done. Mm. Now, until we get uh, the kinds of more effective international solutions you've just been talking about, what kind of role do you think Mexico should play in this whole picture, and what kind of role can it play? Well, I can start with the role I don't think it, sh I don't think it should play, mm -hmm. which is the role that it began to play in 2014, that was still under President Obama, mm -hmm. when you had in that summer of that year this wave of unaccompanied minors right. that reached the U.S. border, mm -hmm. right. and Obama uh, asked or forced or whatever Mexican President Peña Nieto to mm -hmm. basically do the United States dirty work by trying to seal off Mexico's southern border mm -hmm. or at least mm -hmm. seal off the so-called Isthmus of Tehuantepec, mm -hmm. which is the sort of narrow waste uh, in Mexico, mm -hmm. similar to sure. Panama. Right. Um, and um, uh, we did it mm -hmm. for in exchange for nothing, mm -hmm. which was pretty stupid on Peña Nieto's mm -hmm. part uh, and has generated a lot of problems for us because we didn't have and still don't have the... Uh, uh, troops on the ground capability, to mm. use an American term. Mm. We don't have enough military mm. or Navy or national police mm. to mm. place them in the states where drugs and drug violence is present right. and, and the southern border. border. Right. The, 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 right. the blanket is not mm -hmm. big enough, right. and so you pull it to one side and mm -hmm. somebody got uncovered, and that has contributed a little bit to the increase right. in violence in the last few years. So we shouldn't do that. Right. Patrolling our southern border, securing our southern border, makes no more sense than the United States trying to secure its southern border mm -hmm. with a wall. If you don't mm -hmm. think there should be a wall on the U.S. southern border, right. uh, then there shouldn't be a wall on the Mexican southern border for the mm -hmm. same type of reason. So that's, what should we do? Well, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we should help the United States process the flow, mm -hmm. not the legal aspect, but a, a broader sense of mm -hmm. things, you know. And most importantly, and this is something that governments in Mexico have been talking about for 30 years now mm -hmm. at least, um, with the United States, there should be some type of Marshall Plan, some type mm -hmm. of major investment program by the U.S., by Mexico, mm -hmm. perhaps Canada, uh, in the three northern triangle countries mm -hmm. to try and uh, deter uh, migration the right, right. way. Uh, and also on security issues. Obama ended up doing something of mm -hmm. this nature. Right. Uh, when he, uh, he uh, asked uh, Vice President Biden right. to set up this thing called the Alliance for Prosperity, mm -hmm. which ended up sort of petering out because yes. it was not enough money, mm -hmm. not enough time, not enough too many countries. Mm -hmm. it, it ended up being peanuts. Congress then cut it down anyway. Mm -hmm. right. And now the Trump people are cutting it back even more, right. uh, the money has not flowed. Right. So in the right. long term, that's the kind of mm -hmm. cooperation Mexico can really uh, be mm -hmm. useful for. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the idea at all mm -hmm. of Mexico being a parking lot mm -hmm. or a waiting room for Honduran or other right. Central American asylum seekers while the U.S. processes them. Because in addition, the Trump people, you know, are not, it's mm -hmm. not only that they're overwhelmed by the numbers, mm -hmm. they're making themselves overwhelmed mm -hmm. by what they call metering, 
which oh. is to do it drop by drop, right, to right. slow down, let's yeah. call it a slowdown. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing it as slowly as possible sure, sure. to discourage people from coming. Right. But that right. means that they're all sitting in Tijuana or right. wherever. Right. Um, and, and I mean, you know, that's, uh, it's an anti-humanitarian Which is stance. apparently not making many Mexican citizens happy either. Well, of course not. The Mexican citizens, especially on the border, are right. not happy because right. that means you have to feed them, you have to clothe mm -hmm. them, you have to protect them. Sure. That's the way it should be. Right. But mm -hmm. why in the world should we be doing this? Right. Right. What, what, yeah. what is, why is it our job to do that? Um, and so yeah. it, it's, it's, it, it's not just the numbers that are overwhelming gotcha. the U.S. system. Mm -hmm. Trump is deliberately having mm -hmm. the numbers overwhelm the mm -hmm. system through this so-called metering mm -hmm. uh, tactic. Now, when we come to the subject of trying to address the root causes of this migration issue, I have to admit, I, I got something of a loud chuckle, if not belly laugh, upon reading an op-ed uh, co-authored by former U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz, um, purporting to have come up with the ultimate solution uh, to these deep-rooted problems. And it was, in, in fairness to, to he and his co-author, it was a multi-pronged program, but one of the big prongs was he said, gee, let's negotiate a trade agreement with Central America. And I thought to myself, gee, you know, I'm old enough to remember that we did negotiate a trade agreement with Central America back in 2006. And it was supposed to be a, um, a, a cure-all for everything that, that at that point ailed Central America, poverty, human rights violations, things of that nature. And apparently it hasn't worked out very well. And I also couldn't help but, um, but reminisce about similar problems made about NAFTA, which was supposed to be the magic bullet that would transform Mexico into a fully developed 21st century country that would be sending, as the phrase went, goods rather than people to the United States. It, it, it seems clear that that kind of an approach has been tried and already failed. Is there any reason to think that going forward it might have more success? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right in that both NAFTA and CAFTA, right. DR, uh, were oversold, and particularly NAFTA. Right, CAFTA uh, being the Central, Central American, American Free Trade Agreement Dominican and Republic Dominican Republic. added on to it. Exactly. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, uh, they were mainly oversold mm -hmm. on, on every score, but sure. mainly oversold uh, uh, as far as immigration was concerned. Both presidents mm -hmm. uh, Bush and Clinton, Bush 41 and Clinton mm -hmm. on the U.S. side, and uh, Salinas de Gortari on the Mexican side, right. um, said that this would you know, bring an end to Mexican undocumented migration to the United States. Right. Even if you don't buy the stories whereby all the Mexican peasants who used to grow corn all came right. to the United States, right. and I don't buy them. Mm. But like, right. the fact is immigration has in increased enormously from sure. 1994 through 2008 Six. or 9 yeah, right. until the, the Great Recession. Yes, yes. Uh, so those 15 years not only didn't diminish, it increased enormously. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it had, it, at best, right. it had nothing to do with this. Right. At worst, it increased mm -hmm. it. That is not a solution, and trade mm -hmm. by itself is not right. now. What is true, I don't know if uh, Schultz and former Mexican finance minister, Pedro yes, Aspe, exactly. who yes. was Salinas' right. finance minister, right. as a matter of fact, uh, include that, I don't remember very well, but what I do know is that uh, in the big discussions about NAFTA back in mm -hmm. 92, 93 in the United States, mm -hmm. 
some of us, uh, Mexicans mainly, a few Americans, uh, uh, <clears throat> suggested that it should be more of a European style Great agreement. Point. Great point. And that it should have included some immigration facets, but mainly right. some transfer of resources right. facets. Right. And if I could ju just, brief just briefly interject for some context, the idea was that the European Union, when it was coming together back in the late 80s, early 1990s, recognized that there was what you might call a north-south problem here and a, a, a challenge Absolutely. to integrate a more developed group, group, of, group, group of countries with a lower income group and that more than free trade was needed, you needed actual economic development programs. And you can argue um, how much or how little success Europe has actually had on that score, but um, that was a very powerful argument made by many Democratic Party leaders at that time, never followed through on though. Well, particularly Dick, Gep Dick Gephardt, Gephardt was, yes, but the many former, others. The former House, uh, well, uh, uh, he was uh, the majority, uh, the majority leader. leader. Very good, that's right, that's right, House Majority Leader. So, there you see that what was one of the things many of us thought was the main uh, mm. drawback, the main weakness right. of NAFTA. Right. And if you look at the Europeans, you can think what you like about the European mm. Union, but on these two counts, right. since Italy in 1958, mm. through right. Right. Spain, right. Greece, and Portugal, and subsequently Poland, right. it has been a huge success on two counts. Mm. One. Immigration stopped, mm -hmm. full stop. Right. That was it. Right. Within very few years. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the gap between Southern Europe's GDP per capita and the mm -hmm. rest of Europe's GDP per capita shrunk enormously. Right. Greece is the exception. Right. All of the other ones, including Poland and probably now Romania also, and Bulgaria, which right. are complicated. Right. But mm, th sure. it shrank enormously right. over a 10-year period. And the main, the main, excuse me, just to no, call, the, main, the best mm. example of GDP shrinking through mm. money mm. is Ireland, right. which of course is not Southern Europe. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's yeah. the biggest success story of all. Right. And it was, Ireland received more money mm. from Brussels in mm. GDP terms than any other country partly because it's That's smaller. Right. Yes, of course, okay. but still. It's easier, but still. But still. So, it's, so there's no question that that works. Right, let me add one more big success story, and that is that Spain and Portugal had no democratic histories whatever. Of course. Uh, long years and, and even decades of, of dictatorships preceded by monarchies. And yet you have what seem to be healthy, healthy democracies Absolutely. in both countries. Both, even though they face serious economic challenges during that great recession. And, and you know, you can also look at it from the other point of view. And uh, a lot of people used to say in Germany, you know, why should we right. Germans build Spanish highways? Right. Mm -hmm. Pay for Spanish highways. Right. Well, there was a bunch of reasons, but one yeah. in particular. Mm -hmm. Since Germans take all their holidays in Spain. Yes. <laughs> well, it's better to drive on right. good highways than right. bad highways. Right. That's or right. they, could take, they could take their holiday somewhere else, of course. Mm -hmm. but probably they're, they're you know, sunnier right. and warmer. Spanish beaches tend, I think, to be mm. a little more welcoming a real attraction. than yes. German beaches. Yes, <laughs> a real attraction. There, there is one objection that one could raise, and that is that, um, that 
whatever kinds of political weaknesses, economic weaknesses, countries like Spain and Portugal had in the 60s and 1970s when the European integration project really began to take off, they were still colloquially in much better shape than countries like Honduras, Guatemala, um, and El Salvador, where poverty has been much greater, and I think you could argue misgovernment has been much worse. Is, is that something to be mindful of? Uh, absolutely. I think it's a very valid objection mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, uh, you know, a simple analogy, mm -hmm. saying since this worked, do the same thing here, mm -hmm. um, because there are real issues of governance, there are real issues of the rule of law, right. uh, there are real issues of corruption, mm -hmm. not that you know, Spain and Portugal right, or Greece were right. exact, or Italy, southern Italy. Oh, certainly, uh, right. You know, southern Italy is not the first place that comes to mind in terms of uh, good rule government. of law, right. good, rule government. Of law good government. Right, <laughs> right. yes, yes. Uh, but uh, it is true that there is objection. I think there are uh, other, uh, there are responses to those objections. First mm. of all, these are very small countries. Mm. Guatemala, a little less mm. so, but mm. even Guatemala. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Guatemala is about Portugal, right? Okay. Uh, and Honduras and, and El Salvador are, you know, uh, the Bronx. Uh, mm -hmm. right. These are very small countries right. uh, with real problems, but mm -hmm. problems that can partly be addressed. Secondly, Americans don't necessarily like to hear this, mm -hmm. but there is a certain U.S. responsibility mm -hmm. for some of the problems mm -hmm. in places like Honduras and El Salvador. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, in the case of El Salvador. Uh, the Civil War right. of the 1980s mm -hmm. and early 90s, which the U.S. was partly responsible for mm -hmm. by arming the army against right. uh, the insurgents, who, by the way, have now governed El Salvador I for see. two consecutive presidential right. periods without any big problem or you know nothing happening. Son of a gun. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and Honduras, where the Contras were located. Right. Uh, um, and in both cases, Honduras and El Salvador, right where the United States um, jailed young folks, in, mainly in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. from these two countries for belonging to gangs in Los right. Angeles, right. rightly so, they sure. should have been jailed, and then deported them back, back. to their countries, yeah. and the, uh, they took their new uh, skill sets back with them, being right. those skill sets basically being, being what you learn in jail, how to be a gang member. Right. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there is a certain moral responsibility that the United States has, right. which was not the case really for Northern Europe and Southern sure. Europe. Right. There right. was no That's right. uh, issue there. Complicity there. Complicity. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, it, you, if you look at the sums involved, mm -hmm. how much money it would cost mm -hmm. to really change these countries, it's right. peanuts. Mm -hmm. And if somebody comes along and says, well, yeah, but if you do that with those countries, then everybody else is going to want the same thing. Well, first of all, you can say no to everybody yes, else if you want yes. to. You can say yes to whoever you want to sure. and no to whoever you want to, firstly. Uh, secondly, um, the, there are special circumstances, and mm -hmm. those are essentially that you have a lot of the people of those countries, and of southern Mexico, by the way, right. which is a very similar mm -hmm. situation, uh, coming to the United States. Sure. It's peanuts, mm -hmm. and Mexico would be willing to put its share, mm -hmm. which obviously cannot be the right, same share yeah. as the United States because right. you know, we still have hundreds of thousands of Mexicans coming to the United States. Mm -hmm. you know, the Central American immigrants, we should, they should not forget, um, 
the Central Americans are a mm. l larger proportion than before, yes. but they're still much less than the Mexicans in general terms. Right, 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 right. Let's turn to trade issues and keeping in mind that we're unlikely to get this um, comprehensive integrated approach to uh, Mexican and Central happen. American economic development anytime soon. No, not going to happen. Um, we do have a redo of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which went into effect at the beginning of 1994. And there's already been a pretty considerable debate in the United States as to whether or not it represents a significant change to the old NAFTA or whether it's mainly window dressing. Uh, and I was wondering what your thoughts were, um, especially when it comes to U.S.-Mexico trade flows and and the structure of both the U.S. and the Mexican economies, which uh, are certainly, whatever you think of NAFTA, much more integrated now than they were back in 1993. Well, first of all, we could start maybe with what I think uh, would have been useful to include in NAFTA, mm -hmm. or USMCA, mm -hmm. which ended up not being included for right. all mm -hmm. different sorts of reasons. The main issue, in my view, and also, by the way, the Canadian government's view mm -hmm. uh, was human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no there are no human rights clauses mm -hmm. in USMCA, uh -huh. which is a pity. Um, mm -hmm. The Canadians wanted it done through gender rights and okay, original people's rights. Right. Uh, but in the case of Mexico, it should have been done human rights, period, right. and it wasn't, and that's right. a mistake. And that it's not true that this has not been a concern for the United States mm. with other countries right. uh, and mainly for the European Union in their free trade agreements mm, with other countries that have human rights and democracy clauses. Right. So I think that was a mistake. Would, would those clauses have, have, have involved some process by which complaints could be brought to some kind of a trinational commission and sanctions imposed? If a satisfactory... Uh, Basically, uh, that's the way the European agreements see, okay. work, and they could work with the United States uh, and Canada and Mexico. Right. Now, yes, there would be some issues for the United States mm -hmm. also. You don't have to have a standing commission. You can mm -hmm. have ad hoc panels like for right. dispute settlement mechanisms mm -hmm. on trade matters, which mm -hmm. exist. So that's the first thing that I think should have been included. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, I am not convinced, though I'm certainly not an expert on it, that the enforcement mechanisms mm -hmm. for labor issues right. and environmental issues are really any stronger, have more teeth in them mm -hmm. now right. than in 1994. And this mm -hmm. was one of the big shortcomings of NAFTA, mm -hmm. that the so-called side agreements that Clinton renegotiated in 93 after right. Bush, they had no teeth. Right. And the best that's proof... That's why they were side agreements. That's why they were side agreements, because they were meant not to have teeth. Right. And they mainly had no trade sanctions involved. Mm -hmm. Well, the proof that they had no teeth is that they had to be redone again mm -hmm. completely yes. 25 years later. Right. Right. I have very serious doubts right. that they have the kind of teeth now uh, that uh, uh, will really change labor relations in Mexico mm -hmm. and will really allow... Mexican labor unions to organize, mm -hmm. to be present, to fight for workers instead of fight for themselves, mm -hmm. <laughs> and eventually mm -hmm. 
push Mexican right. wages upwards, right. which is what the purpose of the whole of new exercise was, according right. to President Trump mm -hmm. and others. So when, for example, Nancy Pelosi says that, that she will uh, be in favor or against uh, the approving, ratifying mm -hmm. USMCA, uh, only by enforcement, 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 <laughs> meaning labor. Right. Uh, mm. Yeah, but I'm not sure there's enough teeth in the agreement itself. Uh, and I'm not sure that the trade sanctions for non-enforcement right. non right. have teeth. And if they're not trade sanctions, they're meaningless. Exactly. One of the counter-arguments um, to the idea of including strong labor and, and also strong enforceable environmental provisions in these trade agreements is that companies can too easily evade them completely by producing in places like China and Southeast Asia rather than Mexico where those standards just don't exist. Is, is, that, an, is that an objection that uh, uh, that that needs to be dealt with and it needs to be taken into account somehow. Well, it, it, it is an objection, but there are, I think, two responses to it. The first one is that in the long term, what determines where the money goes are wages more than standards. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, if you <clears throat> have strict labor uh, enforcement mm -hmm. uh, standards in USMCA in Mexico, they will make wages go up, which mm. means may, some money may go elsewhere. Right. Mm. But I would rather have that happen okay. than to keep Mexican wages so low. They are miserably low. Right. The average wage in the Mexican automobile industry, mm. which is the big NAFTA success story, right, is sure. about $500 a month. Right. Uh, the hourly wage in most uh, unionized U.S. plants, mm. uh, including fringe oh. benefits, is upwards of $30, $35 mm. an hour. Right. An hour. Right. Sure. Mm. So that gap is so enormous. That's terrible for Mexico. That's mm. not the way we right. want to compete right. in the world. And it hasn't worked out so great for the United States because those U.S. auto wages since, since NAFTA have actually gone down. And, and the number of jobs have gone down. Jobs, and what's fascinating about the automobile industry is that even though the automobile industry, in many respects, led U.S. manufacturing out of that deep recession back in 2008, 2009, wages have gone down faster in the automotive sector still than they have in the rest of manufacturing. So something's going on there, clearly. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. And, the, you know, I think somewhere like there, there were, I think there was about 700,000 jobs in the U.S. Uh, unionized automobile jo jobs mm. in the U.S. all told mm. uh, in 1994. Right. There's about 250,000 now. Some, I think right. the numbers are roughly that. Yeah, that's that. roughly right. So, uh, uh, yes, jobs left. I'm not mm. sure they all went to Mexico. No, A lot no, went to China, I right. think, but or elsewhere, mm. but they, they did leave. Okay. Mm. Uh, that probably was going to happen anyway because of mm. automation, not only because of plants going elsewhere and by the way a lot of Mexican plants in Mexico are becoming yes, highly automated. automated anyway very so, productive very productive mm. the problem for Mexico was right. and this is mm. very clear now we know this as a mm. fact that this entire process because there was no industrial policy behind it led to a situation where the automobile plants in Mexico assemble Right. cars right. with inputs that come from elsewhere. Sure. So right. the value added in Mexico is very That's small. A great point. The imported component is very high. Right. 
and consequently the number of jobs is very low. Yeah. You know, the, the entire automobile industry in Mexico, auto yeah. parts, everything, mm -hmm. everything, the works, mm -hmm. is about 700,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. This is in a country of 130 million right. inhabitants. Mm -hmm. I, it's not peanuts, sure. but if that's the huge success story, you know, I don't want to hear about the failures. Right, right. Was there anything that might have been done when the original NAFTA was negotiated to, to spread the benefits more evenly throughout Mexico? Because it seems clear that however meager they were, most of these benefits were concentrated in the north where these export-oriented manufacturing factories were actually located. Well, it, it does seem, and I'm not an expert on that, but, uh, and there's also an issue mm -hmm. of data, but it does seem that the gap mm -hmm. between northern Mexican GDP per capita and mm -hmm. southern Mexican GDP per capita mm -hmm. has widened wow. over these 25 mm -hmm. years. Hard to say if NAFTA is sure. the driving factor. Right. It could be the weather or it right. could be God knows what. So we, right. we, that's a hard call to make, but yeah. clearly the gap seems to have widened. So, uh, and this was probably predictable, mm -hmm. uh, like it would have been predictable with Southern Italy in sure. 1958 right. and right. the Treaty of Rome, mm -hmm. and which is why precisely they did what they did, which didn't succeed completely. What they right. ended up doing was emptying out uh, Southern, Southern Italy. Italy. Right. Well, right. But all right, but that's, that's a solution. Sure. Maybe it's not the best one, but it is a solution. Interesting. Um, what should have been done? You know, two things I think should have, maybe three, but certainly two should have been included. One was some kind of immigration component, mm -hmm. which does not necessarily mean the free flow of labor, which right. the Europeans did. Right. That maybe mm -hmm. would have been difficult in the yeah. US, but some kind of labor component a temporary worker program, mm. increasing the number of H-2A and H-2B visas, mm. which, by the way, Obama mm. did. Right. Bush, Obama, yeah. and Trump hasn't cut back on it. Actually, yes. he's expanding yeah, it also. Right, right. So uh, Those are <laughs> the visas for seasonal workers. Seasonal right. workers, yes. either in agriculture right. or in services. Yes. Right. Uh, for example, construction, right. uh, for example, hospitality, and some of which uh, used, landscaping, etc. Some of which have been used to uh, staff Trump resorts as I gather. Mar-a-Lago, sure. among others. Right. So um, there's been a huge increase in that over mm -hmm. the last 10 years or so, a little right. more, maybe 12 years, starting mm -hmm. with Bush. And that could have been included back then, right. mm -hmm. uh, which is very different from free, free flow, flow of labor. Mm -hmm. If you take it to the extreme and then mm -hmm. you knock it down, it's a straw man. Sure, right. So right. They should have, that was one thing I mm -hmm. think that could have been included. A second thing that could have been included was sort of, you know, uh, social cohesion and infrastructure mm -hmm. funds. Right. If you want to move, if, if you think what you just said, uh, most of the investment is going to go to the north of Mexico yeah. because it's close to the border, oh, right. uh, because uh, it's less densely populated, mm -hmm. blah, 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 whatever. Right. Okay. And you don't think that's a good thing because it's already the richest part of the country. Right. And so you want to move the stuff off the border. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the first things you have to do is build the highways or the mm -hmm. railroads to right. get the stuff from further away from the border to the border. In fact, one fascinating fact that I remember hearing during the first NAFTA debate, and I'm hoping that you can confirm this, is that the, well, the vast majority of roads and transportation systems in, or land transportation systems in Mexico 
go north-south. Yes. There's almost nothing Since going east-west. Since the 19th west, century. Right? Since okay. the 19th century, right. absolutely. Right. It was done by Porfirio Diaz, ah, okay. basically for the mining companies mm. uh, in Mexico. And the railroads were built by the Americans, then they were eventually nationalized. Right, right. Uh, but that was so. But they're not good enough. Right. The roads aren't good sure. enough. We have the same number of railroad miles today in Mexico that we had in 1890. Wow. It hasn't changed. That's it was wild. done by Porfirio Diaz, it hasn't changed. Mm. So it would have made sense to right. think if we want to push the factories, mm -hmm. assembly plants, away from the border. You needed more, transportation. Uh, you need higher. Sure, sure. Well, put put money, Canadian right. and U.S. Right. money into mm -hmm. that. Again, why should U.S. Yeah. taxpayers pay for Mexican railroads? Right. Because right. it will help Mexico develop, because then sure. there will be right. uh, nicer beaches and right. more, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. It's the same principle. Right. Right. Uh, that's a second component right. that I think now, should have been included. I, I, I can't resist asking, when you were foreign minister between 2000 and 2003, did these issues come up? Absolutely. I mean, the was immigration any, issue. Right. Was there any was there any receptiveness that you found at senior ranks in the U.S. government, either presumably the final year of the Clinton administration or the first years of, you know, Bush one? Um, was there any, was there much receptiveness to this, or was it just brushed off? Or? Well, on immigration, I mean, there are different interpretations. Mine uh, was that until 9/11. Mm. We, uh, we uh, obtained a great deal of receptivity and even real progress in negotiations mm. with Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice in mm. terms of reaching an immigration agreement mm. between Mexico and the United States. Um, now, some people say that this was wishful thinking on my part mm. and that it would not, never have worked with or without 9-11. Prefer to believe that the talks I had with them, <coughs> and the papers we were we were signing, and right. the joint communiques, yeah. and the exchanges of notes that we had, led me to believe that we would have had an agreement soon. It would not have been the perfect agreement, right. not what not what I wanted sure. completely. Yeah. Obviously, that was never going to happen. Right. But I think we could have gotten a very good deal, one in terms of some kind of so-called amnesty mm -hmm. for Mexicans without papers in the U.S. already, and mm -hmm. to some kind of agreement on a fu future flow, right. uh, either through an increase in the existing type of visas right. or through a broader temporary worker program, right. which Republicans, by the way, wanted oh, sure. for their own reasons. Yes. The same way Democrats yes. wanted amnesty for right. their reasons, sure. Republicans mm -hmm. wanted a, a temporary worker program for right. their reasons. Right. And so if you put the two together, you had a balanced thing, right. which by the way, mm -hmm. is what McCain-Kennedy tried to do in 2006, right. mm -hmm. what Bush tried to do with uh, uh, Gutierrez, Carlos Gutierrez, his Commerce Secretary mm -hmm. in 2007, mm -hmm. and what Obama tried to do in 2011. Yes. Sure. They all failed. Yes. They mm -hmm. got it done in the, in the Senate, and right. it got blocked in right. the House. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But first of all, it wasn't such a stupid idea, because these are not exactly... Uh, you know, neophytes. I mean, right. these were mm -hmm. outstanding senators mm -hmm. and two American presidents. Okay. Secondly, that it was very tough to get, but it, you know, it, mm -hmm. it was not impossible. Right. So uh, I think there would, you know, we got some, um, we could have made a lot of progress. Progress, much more progress could have been made in 93 mm -hmm. uh, if the sure. two governments, right. uh, the Canadians were less involved one way or the mm -hmm. other. Right. had pushed for it instead mm -hmm. of pushing against it. Right. 
for political yeah. reasons in both cases, yeah. because anything that involves immigration is more complicated. Of course, right. Lasts longer, mm -hmm. more complicated. Well, yes, right. so right. Well, what's right. the rush? Right. And now we see that all yeah. the, the incredible immigration mess right. that Mexico and the United States have today mm -hmm. basically dates back from 94. Right, fascinating. And so if we had fixed it then, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today, 25 years later. As is the case on so many issues. On so many but other issues. Is it possible to make any useful generalizations about how Mexican public opinion views this new NAFTA? Are there major factions for or against? Or? There is largely indifference. Hmm. Nobody really cares hmm. except parts of the business community right. who were, became incredibly scared, I would say terrified, Mm -hmm. that uh, President Trump would rip up NAFTA right. and, uh, and simply uh, withdraw the United States from NAFTA. Mm -hmm. And that breathed a huge sigh of relief when finally something was negotiated, almost regardless of its content. Right. The see. Mexican business community and the Peña Nieto administration, mm -hmm. the previous administration, uh, wanted a deal at any cost and probably paid a high cost for getting one with a lot of things that are not particularly favorable mm -hmm. for Mexico. We can talk about some of them if you like. Um, Mexican public opinion didn't care a whole lot either way. Okay. Um, and probably, uh, you know, if, if this is ratified by the U.S. Right. Congress, particularly the House, Right. Uh, mm -hmm. the Mexico in general will continue to have that same feeling. In other words, right. relief on the part of the business community right. in terms of certainty and sure. all that, yeah. and largely indifference. Nobody in Mexico thinks that NAFTA before or USMCA now right. is a solution to the country's problems. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but some people believe, perhaps rightly, that mm -hmm. absent NAFTA and For USMCA, sure. yeah. it would have been worse. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very difficult, you know, sure. it's worth pointing out um, the Mexican economy grew an average of two and a half percent per year mm -hmm. over the NAFTA quarter century. Right. If you take out population growth, that's about one percent per capita per year. Right. That's tremendously me mediocre. At best. At best. At best. Actually, it's lousy. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. the argument that it could mm -hmm. have been worse is, is really not a good argument. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's a powerful what, one. Could you briefly tick off what, what you think the, uh, the, the, those major prices that Mexico paid actually were? Well, I mean, the, some of them are more symbolic than others. Mm. For example, there is an anti-China clause right. uh, that the Canadians don't like either. Right, which means that Mexico, that neither Mexico nor Canada can reach a trade deal with a non-market economy, exactly. which China is, uh, without the prospect of, of the United States saying, okay, you know, goodbye, right. USMCA, we're out of here. It's mainly symbolic because mm -hmm. one, at least in the case of Mexico, apparently the Canadians want to negotiate. Apparently, apparently, they think they, they can are. sell a lot of wheat and right. soybeans they, and all that to China. They, yeah. they may be more interested yeah. than we are. We don't have a lot of stuff to export to China. No, that's true. China imports commodities, mm -hmm. and right. we don't have any. Right. <laughs> so right. it's, yeah. it's uh, what we export are manufacturing good, right. manufactured good, which is what the Chinese export. Exactly. So, so you know, we're not terribly interested, right. but still, 
we can't even mm. play with it. Mm. We can't flirt with it. Right. Uh, so that's one. Another one is that there's no five-year sunset clause, okay. but there's a six-year sunset yeah, clause right, right. Meaning uh, with that a 16-year-old 16, a 16 abrog abrogation. Meaning that, what, that any one of the parties can walk out basically after five years, once they check off, once they check a, a few procedural boxes, is that well, no, that's in that was in NAFTA originally. Oh, okay. Anything, okay, I think that's a, a chapter or paragraph twenty-two or mm. five or something like that. I, I don't remember what the number is, but right. that was there. That yeah. at any time, any one of the parties with six months' notice can right. withdraw. Sure. That was there anyway. That, this is what the Americans originally wanted was a five-year review, a binding review clause right. that you had to review it mm. after five years. Right. And if so, and if you didn't like it, then that was, uh, the Mexicans and the Canadians pushed back on that, so they got six years. Mm -hmm. And if after six years, uh, any country decides that in that review process they don't like it, mm -hmm. then they have to wait an additional ten I see, I see. to leave, which is not true either because the uh, exit clause is there anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right. Um, the perhaps the most uh, the 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 most complicated things for Mexico are two, and there's a little bit technical, so I'm not that terribly familiar with them. One has to do with investment state dispute settlement. Right, right. Uh, which means... Very big issue for American progressives. Hugely important. What that meant, basically, was that uh, issues that were ar arose mainly for U.S. investment in Mexico right. between the U.S. investor and the Mexican state mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. had to be addressed through uh, panels right. um, <clears throat> and uh, were binding, etc. That was then restricted to three or four or five industrial sectors. Right. Right. That's right. I think uh, telecommunications, mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly which ones, mm -hmm. but not, all, not across right. the board. Across, right. And so that, in fact, is prejudicial to Mexico mm -hmm. because it discourages U.S. investment in Mexico. Right, right, right. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Another one is not the wage issue in the automobile industry, which some people in Mexico don't like, right. the $16 an hour right. wage component in right. overall in the value of a car. Right. Uh, For that car to get duty-free entry into the United exactly. States. X percentage, I think 40%, 40% has to be produced with that $16 an hour wage exactly. labor. In, right. in, a, in, a, in a plant that pays that. Yes, okay. yes. Or plants. It's tough to be brief when we're talking about these objections. And it's going to be even tougher, yes. <laughs> tougher to enforce any of this oh, stuff. Yeah. But all right. I don't worry too much about that because I'm willing to buy anything right. that will make Mexican wages go up. You know, if it means, uh, you know, putting it, uh, in a, you know, in law, having the Pope uh, get involved, I don't care. Anything that makes Mexican wages goes up is good. Okay. Uh, but there is another issue which is more complicated, which is that um, President Trump has had threatened to uh, slap tariffs on national mm -hmm. security grounds right. on U.S. imports of automobiles right. uh, that don't have sufficient U.S content. Right. And he has not decided yet whether he is mm -hmm. going to do that or not as right. we speak today. And in order to uh, get around that, Mexico uh, and Canada uh, negotiated a mm -hmm. cap 
right. uh, which is in fact what's called a voluntary export restraint right. or restriction, a VER. Right. The Mexicans say it's not true, but it is true. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the first time a Mexican government lies, <laughs> or any government lies. Or any lies. government. Um, and so that cap was set at 2.6 million vehicles per year. Right. If the U.S. does establish tariffs, Mexico can continue exporting up to 2.6 million. Right. Uh, in 2018, mm -hmm. we exported about 2 million mm -hmm. vehicles, and the yearly increase is about 10% per mm -hmm. year. So which it's means coming up fast. In three years, yeah. we'll be there by 2021, mm -hmm. maybe 22. So hopefully Trump will not slap those tariffs right. on. And right. if he does, then he'll withdraw them before we get to 2022. Mm -hmm. But if not, right. we are going to run into the cap. Sure. But we're still further Japanese, German, right. uh, Korean, right. even Chinese, mm -hmm. not yet, uh, automobile investments in Mexico right. are mm -hmm. going to be discouraged Absolutely. by this. Sure. Say, why in the world should I invest? And it takes two years to build a plant to right. begin with. Mm -hmm. And once the plant is up and running, right. then I'm going to run into this cap. And the Mexicans and the Americans are capable of saying, we'll let U.S. cars in, right. but we exactly. won't let Korean cars in. Exactly. Right. So why in the hell should I invest in Mexico? Yep. Now, there would be enough moving parts in U.S.-Mexico relations, in North American relations, uh, between the new trade agreement between immigration problems, but we've also had a new, very disruptive president elected in the United States back in 2016, and we've got a new Mexican president who will be inaugurated in December this month, actually tomorrow from the day that we're, at, that we're taping this talk. And I'd like to know your thoughts on what kinds of changes this might portend in the U.S.-Mexico relationship, whether economic, political, social, take it away. Well, it, you know, it, it's hard to say because, as you just mentioned, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is just taking office mm -hmm. as we speak, practically. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we don't know exactly what he's okay. going to do. We know what he says, what right. he has said he wants to do. And it does seem partly like a paradigmatic change. In other words, basically, he has said he wants to change the basic thrust of the economic, social, and foreign policies mm -hmm. that Mexico has followed the last 20-odd years. Mm -hmm. um, in economic policy, he wants a much more, um, much more state involvement in the economy. Um, he wants much more Mexican self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it autarky, though mm -hmm. it, it goes in that direction, right. uh, even though he supported the free trade agreement, mm. but he, that's lip service. Uh -huh. uh, it doesn't matter what he wants. For example, he wants to make Mexico self-sufficient in corn, mm. um, beans, uh, rice, uh, wheat, and milk. U.S. agriculture is not going to like that. Not going to like it. No. Not, it's <laughs> not going to be easy to do for no, two sure. reasons. Right. One, because of NAFTA. Mm -hmm. right. And two, because that means Mexican producers have to do that. And right. Mexico is not particularly good at doing any of mm -hmm. these things, except on very fertile, highly irrigated land, which we do have, mm -hmm. but we don't have a lot of it. I see. So, I see. 
Uh, but he wants to do that. Mm. This is explicit. Okay. Uh, he also uh, wants to uh, have much more social spending, which Mexico needs. Mm. But that means one of two things, mm. either, or one of three. Either you raise taxes, which he says he doesn't want to do, mm. or you raise borrowing, or you mm. come cut back on other spending. Right. And that changes the parameters of Mexican macroeconomic sure. policy and can lead to a new financial crisis like mm -hmm. in 1994-95. Mm -hmm. So that's a second area mm -hmm. of concern or not concern but differences. Um, and thirdly, he, uh, Lopez Obrador, uh, also clearly wants to change this notion of uh, U.S. foreign in general, but in Mexico, every <coughs> time you say foreign, it means it's U.S. US. Mm -hmm. Foreign okay. is a euphemism yeah. for U.S. Interesting. Okay. That's, and it's been that way for a century. Right. It's, that's not new. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for any type of involvement in Mexican stuff. Mm -hmm. For example, he just mentioned a couple of days ago uh, that one of, the, that according to him, I mean, obviously this is false, but it doesn't matter, uh, that uh, one of the distinguishing features of the Mexican mm. armed forces uh, is that they are of popular origin, which is the case mm. of practically every country in the world, mm. even a country like the United States yeah. with a volunteer army. Yeah. Oh, sure. Because who volunteers? Right. And let alone it, in countries that have a draft, which course. Mexico doesn't, by of the course. way. But in any case. Um, secondly, that it is honorable and patriotic. I don't know of any armies that say that they're not. <laughs> right, I haven't right. heard of any one of those. And thirdly, that it has never been subordinate to any foreign influence. And then mm -hmm. he says, except for what has happened in the Navy in recent times, mm -hmm. but we're going to change that. What does and he mean by that? He means, and he's right, mm -hmm. that the last two administrations, Calderon mm -hmm. and Peña Nieto, mm -hmm. let or encouraged the United States to get incredibly involved oh. in the U Mexican Navy, which is not really a seagoing Navy, it's a mm. land-based Navy. Interesting uh, Navy. This is the elite mm. security mm. and drug enforcement ah, force in Mexico, the Navy. Mm. And the United States has been involved up to its neck in that. Right. And he's saying, I don't want that. Right. I happen to agree with him on this case, in okay. this point, but mm. that's a different story. Sure. That's the sort of differences that we're going to be seeing. Mm -hmm. He is an old-fashioned, chip-on-the-shoulder Mexican nationalist. Right. He may be pragmatic about it. He may mm -hmm. be uh, un, you know, uh, realistic about it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a different story. Sure. Deep down inside, right. that's right. what he is. And that is going to also mean a change in a bunch of things sure. for the new administration, the Mexican one, in dealing with the United States and vice sure. versa. And it, it sounds like the election of a politician this far to the left, and it certainly hasn't been his first presidential bid, but the fact that he broke through this time would at least suggest that uh, there was tremendous unhappiness with the status quo in the, in, in the country. Do you think there are any parallels between his election and the election of President Trump? Absolutely, as well as with the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, mm, who was right. inaugurated on January 1st, or will right. be inaugurated right. on January right. 1st. Um, there's a tremendous rejection in the three countries. We could mm. point to others, but let's yeah, stick sure, with these sure. three. 
uh, uh, of the existing party system, the existing mm -hmm. um, uh, political system, the right. existing electoral system mm -hmm. uh, for economic and social and cultural reasons right. in the three countries. Right. In Mexico, in Brazil and Mexico, is more corruption and uh, 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 violence and crime. In Brazil, more um, economic recession than right. in Mexico, right. and in the United States, more immigration than corruption. Mm -hmm. But if you yeah. two, you'll see the three countries, there's a, there are absolute parallels. Uh, mm -hmm. It's almost irrelevant whether you like to think that Bolsonaro and Trump are right-wingers right. and Lopez mm -hmm. Obrador is a left-winger because, for example, Trump is an economic nationalist. Right. I think that's one of the few convictions he seems to have. Seems. And Lopez Obrador is too. Right. And the Brazilian military from where Bolsonaro comes from uh -huh. also. Yes. He has appointed, quote-unquote, radical yeah. free marketeers to his economic posts, right. but he's also appointed five generals to his cabinet right. and he's former military right. and his vice president is former military right. and mm. the brazilian military since the 19 whatever 30s right. has been has very actively involved profoundly right. sure. economic nationalism oh, uh, right. economic nationalism they're also involved in politics obviously ah. but they have been huge economic nationalists forever and ever and ever so uh, there are many more similarities not only in the factors that led to their election, mm -hmm. but also in their outlooks on life or whatever you want to call it. Right. Is that likely to result in them, at least on a personal level, getting along well, having some intuitive understanding of, of what each other stands for, what they want, how to get there? I think, again, the parallel with Brazil is interesting. Mm -hmm. Bolsonaro is because of his military background and other reasons, he's profoundly pro-American and he's a great admirer of Donald Trump. Right. He has said so. Yes. Lopez Obrador is profoundly nationalistic right. and I would say anti-American right. and um, uh, <clears throat> does not admire or respect or like mm -hmm. Trump. Mm -hmm. If you read what he, uh, he uh, published a little book about a year and a half ago, mm. Uh, about with his speeches and ah, statements about Trump. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it's one insult after another. Reading. It okay, is. Okay. Now, of course, he's saying nice things about Trump, and okay. I mean, he has to, and right. that's the right okay. thing to do. But I'm, I'm interested in what he really thinks. Right. And right. so right. I doubt that Trump and Lopez Obrador are going to get along uh, uh, the way they mm -hmm. say Right. They have been getting along. My impression, little I know about this, is that there's been a great deal of exaggeration about the number of their phone calls, mm -hmm. the extension of each one of the phone calls, oh. <laughs> and the cordiality of each I one see. of the phone. The okay. three things have been exaggerated, mm -hmm. I have heard. Well, certainly National Security Council staffers will be leaking those transcripts soon. That's, I'm, I'm sure. We can count on that. Everything leaks in this ad administration <laughs> right. in Washington. That's right. Let's turn to another issue that I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about that's also been roiling U.S.-Mexican relations along with, with America's own society, um, and that has to do with drugs and this... Uh, truly terrifying and destructive opioid epidemic that has spread uh, throughout the American working class with truly shocking speed in recent years. And um, I know that, that 
that you've been writing and thinking about the Mexican role here, which seems to be, from what I understand, somewhat different than the standard American story that Mexican drug lords keep sending drugs into Mexico and there's not enough Mexican cooperation, et cetera, and this has obviously, uh, this has obviously brought tensions between the two countries awfully high. Well, let, let me back up a second okay. on, first of all, uh, you know, since uh, President Nixon began uh, the war on drugs, he declared it in 71, right. but in fact it's been going, it started in 69 mm. uh, when he took office, uh, Mexico has paid an enormous price uh, mm. for acceding to U.S. pressure mm -hmm. since that time. Mm -hmm. Nixon closed the border in 1969 mm. with a thing called Operation Intercept. Mm. And he closed it for almost a week. So this is not new. It's been going on for a long time, and Mexico's paid an enormous price. Mm. Secondly... What, what's been the main price? Is it possible to boil it down to... It boils down to the war on drugs being waged in Mexico ah. as opposed to being waged in Newark. Interesting. Or okay. Chicago or anywhere I else. I say Newark because it's across the river. Fair enough. <laughs> but if, Fair enough. Uh, if, okay. you, if the United States okay. sent troops into Newark and threw right. everybody who's wow. selling right. drugs or consuming drugs in right. jail, uh, you might even solve the drug problem in Newark. Right. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. But the United States does not want to send troops into Newark. No. Right. So it asks Mexico right. to send troops into the Sierra to burn marijuana and poppy plantations. Right. Okay. okay. Secondly, in the last two administrations in Mexico, Calderón and Peña, mm -hmm. 12 years, um, <clears throat> approximately uh, 250,000 people have been killed in the good drug wars. The normal inertial number of homicides would have been around 120,000. So this is 120,000 people have been have died right. in Mexico right. because of the war on drugs declared by Calderón and Peña. Mm. This is twice the amount of Americans who died mm. in Vietnam. Yeah, twice. Sure. So this is an enormous amount of people which who all died unnecessarily regardless of whether they were part of the drug gangs. Mm part of the army, right. innocent civilians, wow. it doesn't make any difference. Wow. Uh, their deaths could have been avoided had mm. there not been a war on drugs. Mm. It's an incredible price to wow. pay. Okay, so mm. where are we today? Where we are today is one, uh, Mexican marijuana exports to the U.S. Mm. have decreased mm. over the years for the obvious reason right. that now it is legal in the U.S. and so it's being grown in the U.S. legally. Huge cash crop in California. Huge cash crop <laughs> and in Canada and, also yeah, legal oh. and cultivated right. also in British right. Columbia. Mm. Uh, so Mexico has, we've lost part of our market share, uh, partly because we're not competitive. Dang. Uh, okay. Which is not good. Uh, and a lot of the money has moved, the cartel mm. money has moved into poppy. Mm. Now, we've been cultivating poppy in Mexico since World War II. Mm. Some people say that the U.S. encouraged Mexico to do this because the U.S. needed morphine oh, for the troops. Sure, and sure. after Southeast mm. Asia fell to the Japanese, especially anymore. Malaysia, right. uh, it wasn't available. Wow. There's no proof of this. It's sort of a, 
uh, old wives' tale, and it may be true, it may not be. What is true is that we've been cultivating poppy for a long time, but the acreage of poppy cultivation has increased enormously the last 10 or so years in response to the opioid crisis in the U.S., because Mexican poppy is transformed into Mexican heroin, which is transformed into a substitute for prescription painkiller sure. drugs right. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so the Trump administration, like Obama before it, but mm-hmm. much more, has been tremendously aggressive mm-hmm. in pressuring Mexico to do something about right. this, mm-hmm. which has led to this incredibly stupid situation mm-hmm. where we are net large importers mm-hmm. of more opiate, o- op- opium-based oh, okay. painkillers mm-hmm. O- more opiates, which are I natural, Got it. Uh, uh, but in any case, mm-hmm. importers, and mm-hmm. we're exporters of illegal heroin, wow. which is kind <laughs> of crazy when you think about yeah. it. Okay. Um, with the U.S. blaming us mm. directly or indirectly mm-hmm. for the opioids epidemic that right. you mentioned. Sure. Uh, I say directly and indirectly because first they blame us for the heroin we're producing, which mm-hmm. has increased enormously, mm-hmm. it's true, right. in response to greater U.S. demand, right. mm-hmm. but also for being a conduit for fentanyl mm-hmm. uh, exports from China right. to the U.S., mm-hmm. either because it comes in as such mm-hmm. or because it's mixed mm-hmm. with heroin in Mexico wow. and so enters the U.S. that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we are partly responsible, mm-hmm. but it is very difficult for a Mexican or myself to understand mm-hmm. why this is our problem. In other words, yes, I think it's a tragedy that the American white mm-hmm. working class right. is doing all, has these problems, why people in Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire, sure. for example, have so many deaths there. Right. I'm not sure this is my problem. Right. Uh, I ha- it's difficult for me to see why this is my well, problem as a Mexican taxpayer, sure. as a Mexican suffering from the incredible levels of violence in my country. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was something I could do to help, fine. But at the end of the day, this is a U.S. problem right. created mm-hmm. by overprescription mm-hmm. of synthetic painkillers right. over the past 10 to 15 right. years. And then the decision to stop prescribing right. and leaving all these people... Right. Uh, already strung out on, on painkillers. And just as we were talking about underlying economic causes um, generating the latest crisis in Central America, you can certainly talk about underlying economic pressures producing uh, or certainly having a big role in producing this opioid crisis in the United States. Absolutely. I mean, there is a real issue of jobs being lost in a lot of places in the United States, not so much to Mexico. The difference between Mexico and China is Mm -hmm. overwhelming. I mean, there's really no comparison. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But there are problems there. There are problems with, you know, this more complicated issue that uh, 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 the United States didn't have, never built a welfare state because uh, it had... uh, it was a middle-class country, right. and then it right. stopped be- being a middle-class country mm-hmm. and didn't build a welfare right. state. Right. And so now all these people are stuck, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, they are now, you know, facing these tragedies. Exactly. Now, seventy thousand 
uh, opioid-related deaths mm -hmm. in 2017, more yeah. than the AIDS epidemic in the Absolutely. 80s, more than driving accidents, more than anything, mm -hmm. um, which is sure. a, a tragedy for the United States, no absolutely. Question. No question. Let's close with, um, with, uh, with some speculation, okay? Because uh, speculation is so inherently interesting, even though... Uh, it's the most fun. <laughs> it's the most fun. Absolutely. Um, could you sketch out what you think the North American economy might look like, let's say, 10 years from now? Will it look much the same as it looks now? Will it be substantially different? If, if, if so, in what ways? I'm, I'm afraid it will look a lot like what it is now. Mm. Um, uh, in the sense that you will still have this enormous gap between Mexico on the one hand, mm -hmm. and even Central America, if you like, mm -hmm. and the United States and Canada on the other hand, mm -hmm. uh, that unless you have a proactive approach in the three countries to mm -hmm. reducing that gap, mm -hmm. either with European-like instruments or something else, right. lunar instru instruments. Whatever else comes I, up. I, I have, you know, sure. Woody Allen would say whatever works. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt said whatever works. And that, right. unless that is done, mm -hmm the same causes will tend to produce the same effects, right. my sense is. Um, you may have a little more economic nationalism here or there, mm -hmm. or a little less. Mm -hmm. uh, you may have more of an attempt, which is part of this, by the United States to bring investment and jobs back to the U.S., mm -hmm. which may work or may not work, but in the meantime, mm -hmm. it may well discourage investment in Mexico. Mm -hmm. That's possibly true. Sure. But it'll be on the margins. Mm -hmm. And conversely, the new NAFTA or USMCA may marginally increase perhaps investment in Mexico because of greater certainty than if there had been no NAFTA right. or at all. Mm -hmm. But again, it's going to be on the margins in that sense. Um, Mexico is not going to have the money mm -hmm. uh, to, on its own, um, improve education improve infrastructure, mm -hmm. improve the rule of law, right. which are probably the three things that would allow the country to grow instead of at 2.5%, 2% a year, 4 to 5% a year, which would begin to sure. reduce the gap. I don't see that happening. I also don't see happening what should happen, mm -hmm. uh, which was the logic of all of this from the very beginning, that countries with a uh, 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 surplus of capital like mm -hmm. Canada and the U.S., the capital would flow to Mexico. Right, right. And a country with a surplus of labor mm -hmm. like Mexico, right. the labor would flow to the mm -hmm. U.S. Right. The two things did happen, mm -hmm. but not enough. Right, sure. Uh, uh, and, so, and especially in terms of Mexican labor in the U.S., uh, conditions where there are about 12 million Mexicans right. uh, in the United States, of which half have no papers. Mm -hmm. Uh, it would be, it would in a sense have to be more than that, or at least the six million without papers would need right. to have papers and then right. allow for more to flow. That's the logic of these agreements. I right. mean, of yes. integrated economies, mm -hmm. call them what you want. Mm -hmm. The logic is that that logic has not been working properly. Right. And if it right. doesn't work properly, the results 10 years from now are gonna be very similar. Well, it would have been nice to end this conversation on a more optimistic note, 
but perhaps it's, it's more important that it ends on a more realistic, sobering note. So once again, I'd like to thank you so much, Jorge, for sharing your thoughts. And uh, we'll, we'll certainly, I'm sure, all be following your uh, ongoing work very closely. Thanks again. Thank you, For Helen. helping us out here at the Henry George School. On the contrary. Thanks a lot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.